Welcome to episode 243 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Another beautiful day here in Pasadena, sunny Pasadena, uh, Los Angeles. Actually, is Pasadena in Los Angeles? Uh, yeah, they were in Los Angeles County. So it's Los Angeles, but it, in the address, it's not Los Angeles. We're a power on Pasadena is a, is a different city. Yeah, we are so cool. We have our own, <laughs> own yeah, address. Yeah, so there's the two big, um, <laughs> there's like... Los Angeles County, Orange County, which is down south. That's like um, Disneyland and uh, the OC. The Ventura oh, yeah. County is up north. I mean, so yeah, cool. Well, anyway, it is as I'm saying. As I'm saying, a beautiful day in Pasadena, and uh, welcome, Jason, to my home, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Texting. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> so, how, how many times have we come over? Have, have when I've come over here, has it been uh, not a sunny, beautiful day? Yeah, there there really has been very <laughs> few. And in fact, if it was raining, I'm not sure you'd come. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting is that it's it's still green out. Like how 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 are these plants still green? It I'm never guessing, rains. I'm guessing the uh, the office keepers of this uh, apartment complex water the plants. Well, I mean, just the trees. I mean, I'm talking about everywhere, not just in your complex, right? Yeah, it's so, it's it so perfect that like water seeps from the air into the plants and keeps them green. It's like paradise. <laughs> So uh, you just got back from your little uh, paradise, right? You had a little vacation on a lake somewhere. Yeah, not so. I mean, it was it was a nice vacation, but the problem was that obviously, in Digidoo's phase of development, I mean, it probably wasn't the best time to have a vacation, but it was planned for a long time. So, on Lake Powell, which is where we were in Utah, which by the way is humongous, it's like a hundred miles long. This man-made lake, it's just amazing. That's man-made. It's man-made, like just and they just dammed it up at one end, okay, and then it just filled up in this mountain range, okay. And it's like I don't know, eight hundred trillion uh, gallons of water or something. It's uh-huh. like huge, and there's like many places where it's three or four hundred feet deep. Anyway, so I was there um, on this vacation with. Let me just explain. My wireless connectivity was like, I could get one email maybe, you know, on my iPhone, just pulling in the emails from that from the IMAP API, maybe one email every two minutes. Wow. <laughs> and it was, it was pretty, you know, excruciating because every day I would wake up and there would be an email that would take like two minutes to get. And then it would say, everything's broken. Nothing works. <laughs> and I'd like, I'd be like, Uh, (laughs) like there's nothing i could do about it i'm like trying to reply it's not sending replies so then maybe you know at some point later in the day it'd be like okay it's all fixed next morning everything's broken nothing works (laughs) it's just like wow (laughs) but you know i mean basically it was that they just kind of uncovered problems you know problem after all i mean this is what happens early stage startup i mean it's not gonna i mean what about with uber i mean was it for the first year would you say that that thing was stable um how long before you got to true stability well i don't know it's kind of hard it kind of depends on what your definition of true stability is but um you may say we're not there yet right you're right i I don't know i actually i think i don't think it was that bad um there were there were 
times when things went wrong and a couple of times it was because of our data center. Like IPs got screwed up. Um, yeah. Like IPs weren't able to communicate with other internal IPs and yeah. things that really weren't our fault. But we didn't have the resiliency to deal with something like this. Like and what we weren't, we didn't have uh, our systems at two different data centers or something. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I get your point. I mean, yeah, it takes a while to get things stable. So yeah. And you know, new, I mean, when Matt asks me, so Matt's, I guess, uh, the, the, the president CEO. of the company, the pre- he's called the president. So when he says to me, so when, you know, when are we going to get to a point where there's no more problems? And like, unfortunately, the only answer I've got is when we've had all the problems, because you just don't know what's going to come at what you. What should right? be when we sell the company? <laughs> when we sell the company. <laughs> then okay. your company's then but your it's like, are all gone. It's, it's like, you can't, you, you can't kind of get a, a magic ball and say, this unknown thing is going to happen. And I should I should account for it because basically if you're build if you're building a new technology stack if you're using new technology if you're doing things that disruptive that no one else has ever done before there's no roadmap that says these are the things that are going to break so it's, it's Rumsfeld's famous mm-hmm. the unknown unknowns yeah right yeah. so yeah you don't know what you don't know um, yeah there's always going to be a certain amount of that yeah and until you guys kind of fully explore the space the technology exactly. space of of features and 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 uh, in situations and use cases, yeah, and that's going to take a while because you guys have a lot of moving parts. There's, yeah, exactly. It's very a very distributed system, a lot of moving parts, and now we have uh, at the school level we we have local servers on a school level, and um, deploying them, you know, around the country is a little bit like like JPL sending the Mars rover. It just goes. You're like, once it's gone, you're like, I hope it works. <laughs> exactly, because we can't we can't go all over the country, so we kind of have to rely on their IT teams in the schools to. Right. Uh, That's why I remember this early on. I was I kept saying it's going to be really important that you have that reverse SSH yeah, tunnel or way, way of getting to, into getting your in, service. Because yeah. I remember our, our my first startup with my buddy Phil Amon, who we've had on the show before. He, um, yeah, so. We had a situation where our first version of software was client server. We would have to install it on the networks of these banks, trading firms, and then, and which meant that anytime there was an upgrade or a, a bug fix or whatever, or or they had they had some new machines they wanted on, we'd have to trot over there and, and deal with it. Yeah, and that works fine when you have like a dozen clients, but once you get to like three dozen, it turns into a nightmare. Yeah, and and then of course when you have them in different cities, it doesn't work anymore. And that's why we quickly decided to move to the web, and that's why we had the, uh, or that's how we ended up having like a, a web-based training platform in 1998 because it was just too painful to go sit inside a Swiss bank or Avian Amro mm. for half a day waiting for some administrator somewhere to give access to some machines so that you could upgrade. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. So. Has there been any feedback yet from this from the new school year? Oh yeah, it's going well. I mean, uh, basically, we're we're actually literally active in thirty five classrooms right now, which is a lot. There's we're 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 active in thirty five classrooms, and we're moving to a point where we're going to be covering around about fifteen hundred students over the next. How many different schools is that? Do you know? Um, Well, the maximum we've got in any of those schools because they're all pilots at this point. um, Well, actually, what we do have one school who's fully paid up. Um, so that school has five, uh, five, uh, classrooms, mm-hmm. but most of the other schools have two classrooms. So, yeah. Right. So that, that's the kind of number of schools we're talking about. It's going right. nicely. Yeah. Um, actually a new challenge for me is 
you know what? When it's just you developing stuff, you know you're not going to step on your own toes when you commit code. Right. When it's one person, an Udi, who's like, you know, half a person because he's four hours a day, it's still not too bad. You can kind of keep track. Right. Now we've got four. Now it's just me plus three others. Right. So. There's you, Jeremy, Alex, and Udi. Yeah. So now there's management that needs to be done, right? Actual management. Like I can't just get away with not managing it anymore. Right. Um, So uh, the big thing I've been doing is looking for a project management tool or a way of like tracking tickets and issues and whatever. Who's doing what? Mm -hmm. Wow. And I've tried so many different products over the last, I don't know, two months, just checking out something, but finally found a product that I really like called Sifter, S-I-F-T-E-R-A-P-P.com, I don't Sifter know, app. I, I know I've read about Sifter. I, I, I feel like that guy is a listener to the show. It's like a one-man startup. Yeah, it is a one-man startup, but I don't think he's a listener to the show. Well, maybe I just happen to read a couple of his blog posts yeah. or something. But, uh, I mean, just, like, it has all the features that I was looking for. It's the problem with something like Asana. Everyone raves about Asana, but to me, it's just too complex, and it doesn't feel like a good workflow, and it doesn't seem like it's really easy. I I want somewhere where I can go in and say, show me everything that Udi's doing right now, and, like, just click a button, and it it doesn't have to load a heavy page. It's just, you know, simple and nicely laid out, nicely designed. Lots of negative white space I like in the the design. Right. Are Um, you, um, what are you using for, uh, are you, uh, for um, version control? Are you guys using some version or Git? Oh, well, actually, it's interesting you should say that because that, so, so it's all, right now, Digitoo's kind of at this stage where it's all about, I guess, we're professionalizing the startup team. So we have been using uh, Git the whole time, but we had one branch. Remember we had that discussion about one branch, master branch? Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we've got to a point where, because Sebastian's doing some contract work for us on the side. Mm -hmm. He's doing some stat stuff, right? So we want to get that so that it's it's displayable and viewable for for the management team. Problem is, where do you put it? Because do you just like manually copy that code onto the staging server? No. Or... You know, and or do you check it in? But if you check it in, then it gets into the master branch, right? So now what we've got is we have three branches and four servers. So we've got a dev branch, we have yep. a staging branch, yep. and we have a master branch. But the so what happens is if you check into dev, it instantly gets pushed to the dev server, and there's a whole server batch, you know, for dev. If and then you progress that to staging and check it in, and then it's instantly deployed to staging, right? Then you can progress. So you basically merge up the line and then you merge into production and it gets instantly deployed to our new environment called certification. Okay. So that now that's, so that's, there's still one step in front of production and then our QA team. Sometimes that's called user acceptance testing or certification, right? Yeah. So our user, so, so once that's tested by the QA team, then basically we say, okay, now it's going to go to production. This means that finally in a staging branch or a dev branch, we can push Sebastian's stuff to live servers, which we never would have been able to before. Yeah. Now, the question is, do you... So let's say there's three or four people working on stuff off of dev. Do they create a branch off of dev and then merge it onto dev? Yeah. they, they right. Well, on their local machine, they create feature branches. Right, create a feature branch. Yeah. Now, do you merge or do you rebase onto dev? Now, that's really interesting because I don't know what rebasing is. All I know is about is merging. And the irritating thing about merging for me is it just says merge commit x4 yz2 and it doesn't really give me clarity now what's rebasing tell me about that all right so i'm not an, a real expert on the on the on the sort of deep dark secrets of git yeah um but that's what we do at uber we rebase so when you have a feature branch you're working on and yeah. you have you know dozen or two dozen commits and you and you want to rebase it or you want yeah you want to rebase it onto dev or merge it into dev rather. yeah so 
what you're supposed to do is squash all your commits into one. And that so that's why it's easier to look up and say, I can look at all of when I look at the rebase, I can look at all the commits as, How if, do you it's one, as if it's one big commit. How do you squash? Um, you open the, um, you go to uh, log, you get log. Yeah. Okay, on the branch. And you, um, and then you just do like a, uh, it has a list of all of the, um, of the commits and you just do like a dash S or something like that. I mean, squash. squash okay, so you squash them all into one, yeah. You squash into one commit and then you can rebase. Then it's easier to see. So it's, it's like it's one big commit. Oh. So in the diff, when you're looking at the diff, yeah, because that is a yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you squash the commits and then you rebase it. And so rebasing it, from my understanding, it my mental model may not be accurate. So <laughs> you might want to read about what is rebasing. Yeah, <laughs> but the impression I get is that it just sort of like it makes it so that as if these changes were made off of that original branch. Oh, bases those. Yeah, bases those changes off of those. Because I use SmartGit, right, and uh-huh. it's basically the visual interface. And whenever I open it up, I mean, it's like it's like a snaky, windy river, a river representing all the different branches and how they're all merging and kind of working together. Yeah. So the rebasing, obviously, the rebasing of squashing that, commits yeah. and rebasing will mm. probably clean that up for you. So you might want to read about it and yeah. see. I mean, I know there was a big uh, argument um, on uh, Hacker News six months ago about you know where you should merge or rebase, but that's what we do at Uber. It seems to work. It's know? incredible how much new time there is now in the process like i commit some like i can't just commit something to the the master i have to get it into dev and then i have to move it up to state and like and you have to just do that you have to push it through all of those different environments otherwise it's not yeah piece of codes can be missing in all of those environments yeah i call it uh i call it github bureaucracy because <laughs> i i just I, I working with one of the guys in the dispatch team on this on this um real-time dashboard or command center that I'm building for the, uh, for the dispatch system and all yeah. of the real-time components. And so we had our own little uh, branch that we're working on and we could just merge back and forth, you know, just yeah. go pull and merge, pull and merge. It was really easy. But then our stuff got deployed, uh, got pushed on the dev and then dev got, mer- got rebased onto master and went to production. Yeah. First version. And George, the guy I'm working with, is like, okay, so like now let's we got to be a little more formal about it and do the PR requests and the code review. And I'm just like, oh god, like <laughs> it's so. I mean, I understand it's important because you can't let stuff get out into production that's not been vetted and tested and reviewed and all stuff. But it just really slows things. It, down. Re- it just it slows. Just, you, you're, you're, you're moving slows at things you're moving you're moving at like twenty percent, fifteen percent speed. Yeah, and I feel like. I mean, because just the your PR request, PR request, merge this on, rebase on this, run that through testing, rebase this, merge, now code review, review, code review, test. It's like, is anyone write any code? Or all we doing is like or approving and PR requesting and, and, and checking why is Jenkins broken, not Jenkins broken. Stuff but it's like a difficult it's thing to explain to management, especially when they've been used to a fast pace yep. of, of, feature, of, of new features. Now I need to say, well, we're, we're down to 20% output now, you know, we're 20% the speed that we could possibly be, especially um, once we add, because we have to do new stuff as well. We have to pay a lot of technical debt, so that's even going to stop features. Like we have to set up the automated build environment, yep. the continuous integration, all that kind of stuff. We have to set it up, you know, unit tests, all the stuff that we've kind of not been doing, we have to do. Well, I mean, it's it's one thing when you have one classroom using it, and if something breaks, you you know you can kind of maybe parachute in and fix it. You know, you you can't have problems like that. 
I mean, yeah. they're massive in scale in uh, in the scope of the problem, right? It affects so many people. So, so to prevent that, you have to do all this extra work, which slows things down. Is annoying. I mean, it's, you can tell it's not. It's like it's not fun for us, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. nobody wants to spend their days rebasing, approving, merging, PR cresting all day. But it's like you know, we we have to ensure high quality production code. As a side note, I told you how we have kind of local servers at schools. I am thinking in the back of my mind about switching the transport to Node and maybe at some point using you as a consultant to do some kind of grid system. Sure. You know, because I think that Node would be a really nice way of getting data from those schools back to the central system. Yeah. Um, because I know that it's right. It's like there's a lot more activity going on than I realized there would be, especially with stats. Right. You know, tracking stats and just like there's a lot of connections. Because right now you do this sort of polling interval based right. pushing push and pull yeah. kind of stuff. And yeah. it's not it's not really what is it is reliable or is fast or is it's just not it's just not great. So basically I mean if if data's if kids are like on their tablet and they save some questions or whatever, like we then post it back to our central API. But like with a lot of so that there's like an intermediary. So then the central API is getting a lot of requests back to the central API via all servers at the local schools. Right. And I think that there could be a much more efficient way of, of getting that data back. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so that's... Yeah, Node no, is a powerful tool. I mean, if used, if used yeah. in the right situations, I mean, it can yeah. make things way more efficient and way faster. And it's actually pretty pretty elegant. And have you written any Node yet? You've played around a little bit, right? No, we have. Actually, well, the, the other thing is, is I wanted you maybe to review some of the node that Udi has written okay, um, to just have a look and just give us maybe best practices because we have one problem right now where there's CPU overloading and we don't have any idea why, right? Mm. So we're just not, we just turned off the chat feature right now. Yeah. So what you really need is you need to use uh, the, uh, the profiler that Guy and I built called Clouseau. Yeah, that's, that's totally right. So would, who would be better to consult on that? Would it be you yourself or Guy? Well, I mean, either of us could do it. I mean, it's just yeah. about a uh, time availability. Yeah. I mean, um, because you know. I would just love to plug in that profiler, and then it just tells us what's you know what the problem is. Yeah. So what we could do is I I could just, you know have a conference call with you and Udi, and we could yeah. just I could just show you how to use it, okay. set it up, and then see the beautiful thing about it is that you can set it up, and then you can just do a request on the um, hit an endpoint, and it'll, and it'll give you a printout like a tree mm. of all of the calls. It'll also just say like here. It'll also list first. Here are the all of the calls ordered by the most expensive calls, um, anything above, say, like 2% or 1% or whatever you set the cutoff to be, you know, without including the, um, the calls to its functions, the functions that it calls, right? So you know exactly where the heat and is. And so is that socket IO that that works with? Okay, well, no, this is just purely the, uh, the profiler itself. Yeah. Now, the way, the way we set it up at Uber is we, would, we created a control port, so we would... So that you could uh, curl or do a um, huh. any kind of soccer request to that process because it would t- would listening on this port and you would just say uh, profile so we did slash profile or whatever and it would it would shoot back all of this data which is on the console so you know the real time system is running and it and it really didn't slow down the uh, process huh. that much maybe ten percent additional well, that's load that's really interesting yeah um, you know not ten percent CPU but ten percent more so we ran at thirty percent it was running at thirty three percent or thirty five percent maybe so not that much but at any time we get hit it and figure out what's running hot what what are the slow um, so you methods. just leave it in the system the whole time yeah 
And then, uh, and then, and that, that kept us alive for like four or five months when, um, we were growing so quickly that we, we were running into CPU mm. <laughs> as yeah. a, we, we were CPU bound. Yeah. And, uh, it got us, it, it bought us the time that, we, that we needed to get the grid built to really distribute it, go horizontal on the nodes processes on a per city basis. Mm. And, uh, it was funny. I mean, it was just like, it was like two months, especially where three or four people were all day just hitting the profile, looking at the output. Everybody was done a function. All right, I'm going after this one. Like, how do I make this faster? How do I make this faster? Nice. And um, it's incredibly useful. And when you don't have something like that, you're kind of um, just in the dark, right? A- anyway, the um, the uh, the profiler should really help you guys get get some real. Uh, insight into what's slowing things down you'll probably find out it'll be pretty obvious it'll be like one or two things that you're doing that sounds like obvious. a must must use so yeah yeah um well great well yeah just let me know and i can uh i can help you i mean i i could just put you to the repo and if you guys want to just try and take your you know give it a shot at integrating we'll, we'll try we'll if, try if, if you <laughs> if it's not obvious or you need some help then i'm more than happy to help you um well, thanks man thanks. sure sure the um the other thing I want to say about the, the whole all the GitHub bureaucracy. Yeah. One thing I always try and do is I I sort of sandbox myself off and take a I take a project that has minimum surface area in regards to the rest of the system because I hate dealing with that. Yeah. Like the the rest of the dispatch team spends all day going back and forth on you know and uh, approve PR requests and approving encoder views and stuff. what's PR requests? So it's a it's what's a pull request. So when you work on your feature branch and you, after rebasing it on to dev, mm. um, you do a pull request, which then um, will give a notification to pe- other people on the team, like, hey, take a look at this, and they will give it a code review, go through it, you know, line by line or whatever, see if they see anything that doesn't make sense or could be done better. And um, if there are any comments like that, then you go back and fix it, and then you know, rebase again and they do another pull request and you, and you do that a couple times until it's sort of accepted. The rest of the team feels like it's good. And if it's good, they will click merge and, and GitHub and it'll merge the pull request. It'll, 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 huh. it'll merge the code into uh, dev. Yeah. So now that I think about it, that's what I, what I do with easy SQL. So easy SQL is on GitHub and people, I don't know, once every couple of weeks make some changes to it and they'll do a pull request and I'll, I'll review it like that. I had never thought about that's a reason to use GitHub for actually professional oh, yeah. development. Right, right. So, you know, if Jeremy or Udi does some work on their feature branch, they rebase, they squash their commits, rebase it, do a pull request on it, then you and Jeremy can look through the code or Jeremy and Udi can look through your code or whatever, and then everybody can have some, um, there can be some consensus like, yeah, there's no issues here. Like who, whoever wrote the code mm. um, has covered all their bases. There is an edge case that they didn't think about or... Oh, by the way, what you're doing here, this, these methods here, there's another class that we wrote that does all this stuff for you that's already been tested. You know, just whatever, right? Because because the system starts to grow, not no no one person usually has complete visibility in everything. Where, now, where where does the pull request happen? Is it on every one of these branches? It is on the development branch, staging branch, and live branch, or do you do you give people you know autonomy to check in up to the point where it ends up in production? Well, the way we do it is we just do the PRs and stuff on the dev branch. Um, oh, just the dev branch. I don't, you know, we don't have a staging so much. We have more, at least with the dispatch team, we have dev and then we, you know, we, it automatically runs through, you know, whenever you do a commit or you push up your, your code, it will, uh, it'll run through like an automated testing suite. 
I Jenkins. See. Yeah. And if everything goes through, right. So it's constantly tested. And, and, and so you wouldn't do a PR request unless all, unless all, all the tests pass. And then, so at the very least, once it's been, the tests have gone through and, and it's been accepted, the PR request has been accepted and merged, then it's all about, um, you know, whoever's sort of in charge of, of rebasing that on production and deploying it. Well, you're the dispatch team, so there's not like a visible component, really. Is that, am I right in thinking? Right. That? Well, that's actually what I'm building. Yeah. So, so that, so that's the reason why you don't need state because you don't need a place for people to actually look at it. Right. I mean, it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a backend system. So, and I'm building what we're calling a dashboard or, you know, I was jokingly called the command center. So it's like, we need to receive all this data from all these different um, components that are running in this very big distribute in this very distributed manner across multiple machines and maybe possibly multiple data centers and looking at it all different ways and then be able to uh, manipulate it and change it and restart it and move services around and, and do all that kind of cool stuff. You still don't need staging or certification because that's not client facing. So it's fine to go straight from dev to live with that, with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know, I, I may be, um, missing something i mean i don't to be honest with you once once my stuff has been uh rebased and pull requested and whatever onto dev and it's good to go then as far as i'm concerned it's a black box like amos takes over and takes care of the deployment so i don't know if he's doing if he's running through anything else Um, is there anyone who's like exclusively sysops for this kind of stuff oh yeah well we have what we call our infra team or infrastructure team yeah and they do a lot of stuff like that and that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking like this could take up a lot of time dealing with all this stuff. I'm thinking there's going to be a point where I need to bring in someone who's just that guy. Yeah, your infra, your infrastructure person. Yeah. yeah. So you might have a see. They're 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 more than sysops. So they're kind of they're kind of like they're DevOps people, right? So they're developers as well DevOps. as strong. Really, nice they have strong. Yeah, I mean it's sort of a whole new category of of skill set. I mean it's like um, they're they have they have much stronger the development skills than a traditional system administrator mm. but they have much stronger system administration also than a traditional developer so they're kind of they're hybrid you know actually jeremy is a devops because jeremy's an interesting case and I, I like the way that he does it he basically doesn't use a mac he doesn't use windows he uses ubuntu that's his yeah. main os okay so he's he will even say himself the reason why he kind of knows the sysops is just because he uses ubuntu right right it's just it's just part of using it you know you have to kind of learn how to do stuff so as a result he can like he can do some things like go into bash rc you know the dot bash rc whatever it is and start hacking stuff you know which most of us wouldn't wouldn't be involved with yeah i've had to learn a lot about the last year and a half and and honestly i've you know, admittedly, I, I've been dragging my feet. <laughs> you know, I, I've dragged my feet every step of the way because I just, you know, I don't, I don't want to, right? Like, I don't yeah. want to have to do this crap, yeah. but I've just had to learn how to do it. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, because Git is very command line driven, at least the way I well, do it. And all, and then of course, there's all the bash stuff and then the environment stuff. And I don't know. It's, can you truly call yourself a full stack developer without some kind of sysops in your, in your toolkit? I, yeah, yeah. I guess, right? I mean, nowadays, the vast majority of this stuff all runs on Linux yeah. or, or, or some kind of Nix, right? And, and you, can't, you can't do that unless you know how to do some at least rudimentary sysops stuff, right? Or sysadmin stuff. I mean, you know, because I have VPSs running for like three or four different projects. So I have to still get in and install a bunch of software mm-hmm. and, you know, through the command line and update stuff and, 
you know, set up, you know, whatever. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm not as this administrator, but I've definitely learned, I'm definitely way better at it than I was, you know, before. Now it's like SSHing in and dealing all this crap is like, it's just sort of. So it's official part of, part of the, the full stack, uh, title means that you know something about Unix. That's what I think. Yeah, you, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you have a certain comfort level, certain, um, at least a minimal proficiency with it. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I think nowadays you're just kind of, um, you're rendered sort of um, impotent if you can't. If you can't do any of that stuff, uh, which is, ha- I think, ha- like for people like me who came from the Windows world, you know, later in the development career, it's frustrating because now it's like all the stuff that was kind of done for you was just sort of there. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you have to do it and manually do it, and the stuff doesn't work that well. It's not that well documented, and a lot of it's kind of maybe even kind of counterintuitive, and it's just irritating. But the reality is you just have to do it. But a lot of the guys you're working with who are in their 20s are like, they just came up doing it that way or they came up and, and you know, getting their computer science degrees and that's, they spent all their time on the command line. And yeah. so they're like, well, what's the big deal? You just do app get here and then do this and all this <laughs> stuff. And you're like, what do you, I don't even know what you're doing. What are you even doing, you know? Yeah. Um, Alex did uh, s- s- something with said. You heard mm-hmm, of said? It's mm-hmm. like a find a, command line find and replace. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh. I don't even know how to do that. I should know how to do that. Like that's easy. That's it makes life easy to to do something like that. Well, you know, it's it's it, it's funny. Just yesterday, I, I I was trying to teach Colby a little bit of the command line stuff. Yeah, because I noticed he so he's spending a lot of time, or he has been spending a lot of time the last month or so playing Minecraft or couple of my, or, or maybe the last couple of months this summer especially. Yeah, with a couple of the kids from Catalyst, uh, Marco and Liam, and as a result of like that and Kerbal and installing all kind of different mods and playing around with it, like he's getting really fast on the machine. Like just moving stuff around and creating links, move stuff to the dashboard, install this, move to download this. I mean, like he's, for an eight-year-old, it's sort of shocking. He's a digital native. That's, yeah, exactly. He's a digital native. Yeah. And I looked, I, I sat down next to him and I said, hey, Colby, let me, I said, do you know how to work on the command line? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, he's like, you mean the console or terminal? I said, yeah, bring that up. And because he does, there's a certain amount of that that's done in Minecraft itself, like configuring it. They have kind of like a little command line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've right? seen that. So yeah. he's kind of doing, so he's getting used to typing in commands and configuring stuff. And I said, well, Colby, you see, open this up, you see what directory you're in. And I showed him in the finder, here's where you are. Well, so if you do ls, it'll list out all the files in the directory. You see that? Now, you see that one's a directory, hit cd, go into that. Yeah. And he's like, okay. And I hit ls again. He's like, okay, and I'll cd dot dot. And I let me, he's like, do you understand? He's like, yeah, I got it, dad. I got it. <laughs> 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 I got it. So I was kind of thinking, like, in terms of Catalyst, should we maybe, especially with a smaller group, get them going on the command line on their mm. machines and get them used to like creating directories, but just doing things like through the command line and maybe even using VI and just making. Well, really- wow. I mean, teaching eight year olds how to, how to write bash scripts is pretty hardcore. <laughs> well, I mean, if you could just get them to like being able to move around the, move around in the yeah. file system, create and delete directories, rename stuff. Yeah. You know, move stuff around, but just be able to do that kind of stuff. It's like seven or eight commands, maybe do a finer place. Like, and then that will be easier once they can do that. Like maybe you spend a session, like everybody just moving around stuff. Like, you know, let's create, try and create a directory structure. that looks like this ding, 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 you know? And w- once they get kind of comfortable with that, then when they write programs, they can put it in files and move them around. And they're not like, I don't understand what's going on. 
I don't know. I was just thought I had. Yeah, that's today. good. I like I was it. Almost thinking. I'm like, I don't know. And I, cause I'm not even good at VI, but I'm like all the guys at Uber, or I would say all the guys, I'd say probably two thirds of them use VI. The rest are probably a quarter of them use Sublime maybe. And yeah. a few of them use like some random things like WebStorm. And then there's like me using Komodo at it. They're like, what is that you're using? Yeah. But I was thinking like, I find, I find uh, having, I mean, it's to me using VI or just a completely uh, um, a keyboard driven editor seems to me a little antiquated. However, when you're, when you, when so much of the stuff you do is, is, is administrating remote machines and it's all through SSH and stuff like that, it makes it infinitely more convenient if you just are perfectly comfortable with VI. Oh, yeah. And you just yeah. get in, you start banging around yeah. as yeah. opposed to like, okay, so I can't edit this thing or now I have to remind myself, how do I get in insert mode and edit and say, how do I do this? Or yeah. what I'm going to do is I'm going to get in there and then I'm going to FTP the file back to my hard drive, to my local system, open up my editor yeah, and FTP sucks. back, which of course is kind of... But I mean, VI has like so many different short, like different things that it can do better... I mean, maybe someone's going to write a comment and say, no, no, you can do all that with all the other editors. But when I go into Pico or something like that, say I want to get to the bottom of the file, I've got to click down, 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 down. Mm -hmm. If the file's like 100 lines long, is it 100 lines long, it's just very, very painful. I go into VI and I'm just like, you just double click the curly brackets and then you're down at the bottom of the file. It just has whole, you know, all sorts of things about navigating through the text and find and replace and just finding things, it's just just much easier. You know with VI, you, you go and you click the forward slash and then type in a word, hit return, mm -hmm. it'll jump to the first instance of that word. Yeah. You know, that just things like that to just get around those textbooks. Those now, I, I have to admit, my VI foo right, is right. incredibly weak. On a scale of 1 to 20, it's a 1. So I can, I can do just the minimal amount that I need to do to go into the git log and squash the commits and, right. and you know, colon you know, QW or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Now, right? Like, I just do the few <laughs> little bit that I need to do, but I'm just sort of thinking that rather than having to install a bunch of different text editors... On it's on machines, everything. It's like every machine has VI. Like, you're never going to not have VI. Well, unless they're on Windows machines. And some of our... Some okay, of our, I mean, I'm talking about the, yeah. the Unix kind of flavor. Yeah, so I'm... I, I, anyway, um, well, speaking of Catalyst, so yeah. Colby, Colby comes up to me on... Uh, Tuesday and it's about 10 after five. He's like, he's like, come on, dad, we gotta, we gotta get ready to go. And uh, I thought he meant go to the gym. Cause usually I'll, I'll take the kids. If they don't have some kind of activity, I'll take them to the gym. This is a Tuesday, Tuesday. And he goes, come on, let's go. I'm like, what do you mean to the gym? He's like, no catalyst. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, Colby, we're not actually going to start that for two or three weeks. We still don't have the room yet, but he was so amped up. Wow. Already. Cause I guess he was just finished his homework and he, he told, he told Sandy, he's, he's like, to I want to I want to go talk to daddy about Catalyst. And she's like, OK. And he's like, we got to go. That's we great. Got to go. Got to go. And then uh, last week I, I told him, I said, hey, Colby, a buddy of mine is going to start a uh, basketball clinic on Tuesday, Thursday nights over at the YMCA. I thought it might be kind of fun um, if, if you're interested. And he's like, yeah, maybe Thursday nights, but I can't on Tuesday because we got Catalyst. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, right. That's a good point. But I mean, so he is dialed in and ready to ready to roll. Great. I mean, I, I've, I mean, I guess, I'd, I guess I'm just, we got to do it. I mean, he's just, no choice. I don't think he'd ever forgive me. Yeah. If I said, you know what, we're not doing Catalyst anymore, Colby, because it's just too much work. He'd be like, well, he'd be forever about, scarred. Even that command line stuff, I could do a, a Digidoo lesson about that. Give every kid a tablet, then they could go through, so they could work on the command line and have some material to help them 
make some decisions about what they're going to do, mm-hmm. set up set exercises and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, I'm. Uh, well, you know, I built that uh, that system that that, that question answer system. Oh, you've done that. Yeah. Well, it's it's pretty close to working. I, what I need to do is sit down with them, really and give yeah. an honest assessment of like how many more hours it would take to work. So, the the thing it has over, say, Digidoo for this mm-hmm. is that I mean, Digidoo is is is, <coughs> is um, custom built for classroom um, uh, content. Uh, you know, for what's the word I want to? I, I'm 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 stumbling on the word I want to use, but it, it's for presenting content and then asking a few conceptual questions. What did this mean, right? It's not for, here, do 40 problems just like this. Yeah, it's right? not, it's it's not, not really. like re- repetitive learning, time-space learning. It's not like it's not that. that. It's just regular. Well, it's not regular learning, but it's what, as, as you described, yeah. yeah. What these kids need more for than anything. For this type of thing. Is, is, to, is, to, is they need uh, a lot of, uh, they, need, they need like muscle memory, right? They need yeah. repetition. It's like shooting jump chops for basketball or something. They need to do it over and over. Hitting four heads in tennis. They got to do it over and over again. Um, and again, they're young, so they're not going to, they're, they're still not the level where they're going to be comfortable reading a lot of material. At, at the age of eight, nine, ten, they're still not like, well, I'm going to read four paragraphs about how to do something. That's very difficult for them. I think, like your kids that you're, you're that you're, that are targeted for digital or tend to be more like 13. 14, Maybe, 15? but we use a lot of video as well. Yeah, so it have so, to be video. Yeah, so you have to produce video. I mean, they're just not they're not yeah. going to read a lot of uh, a lot of text. Okay. And, and if they, even if they could read it, just really be able to um, get it in their heads, I would be very skeptical that would work very well. All right. Just for seeing the kid, Colby and the, I just not really they watch videos to learn. Well, I'll put some, maybe I'll maybe I'll have a go at putting something together and see just myself if I can think of anything. Yeah. And if if I can, then we'll try it out. And if not, then not. So. yeah. I mean, I, either way, I mean, I, I I'm I'm kind of thinking that it might be interesting to teach them command line stuff and mm-hmm. then have them work rather than having to, them to do all the coding in the browser like I was doing before. If, yeah. Is is just I'm I'm thinking maybe just abandoning that. It's just too much. Um, too much work to keep that thing up mm-hmm. and it might be easier to just say look everybody's gonna have a development environment locally and here's the here's the, 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 the thing you're gonna build well i mean if you're at the command line you know php is only one step away you know yeah and that's the other thing i was thinking i was like should we ha- teach them to build simple websites website. would that be yeah. would that be something that would be project oriented in real enough so it's like if everybody had their own website that they'd actually make live in the real world first it's just several simple hello world i don't know why i mean we've already taught them javascript i don't know what's so bad about making them do a web page with some javascript stuff well yeah that's what i'm thinking just html html page with javascript embedded yeah i'm just i'm just sort of thinking that making making like longer term projects right um, that they can continue to iterate on and they actually have their own website and then they can have, move and have their projects publicly viewable. What about, was there with that, kind of you know that one person who did uh, like one project every day for like six months or something? Mm-hmm. One, one website a day and each one was like an HTML page with JavaScript. You could, I bet you there's some real simple stuff in there that we could nab. Sure. I don't know. So, I mean, obviously, I'm not, I'm not trying to teach these kids to become web developers. Right. No. I mean, it's like that's that's the, not the goal. It's not to like I want you to get a job and you know <laughs> write code in a startup. Like that's not what I'm thinking. My my thinking is more towards is like the polymath project. You know, not not just programming 
and math and uh, and science and electronics and yeah. artificial intelligence. I would, I'd like to ultimately do all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, as it turns out, programming is just very accessible. And it's interactive. It, it just, it's easy for us to... And also, that's what we're best at. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, and making their own website might provide a nice platform for building their own projects and making them available for other people to see and interact with. Mm-hmm. You know? I like it. Without us having to do a lot of work. I mean, I felt like all the work that I put into building that Catalyst ID infrastructure, um, it was really cool. I mean, it, you could if, if that was like a startup project, you could do it. But as a side project, it was just... Too much. Too much. And I'm a little concerned about um, having to maintain that, especially in our limited Wi-Fi capabilities. So, That's a kill, that was a killer for us. Yeah. So maybe we have them, but then of course we would have to do some configuration on people's individual machines. But if we have a, if we have a set group of like six or seven kids, rather than have this fluctuating 13, 12 or 13 kids, and they're all hardcore, it's like, look, we get your machine set, like you have to bring this machine. Like your parents have to understand you cannot bring your dad's laptop. You're, otherwise you're stuck. Like you got to bring that. And, you know, each, each, one's gets, each computer gets set up, they have the development environment, and then they can, uh, and then we can start with building like their little websites and each website, and then we could build web pages that could do interesting JavaScript programs that do all kind of cool math, science kind of stuff. Yeah. But we have the platform being their like individual website, and then what we could do is maybe we could create. I, I actually do this, so I have like a reseller web account at one of my web hosts, so I can just create a bunch of individual websites that they have FTP. And SSH access. Nice, so nice. they can just push their stuff up to that server and make it public. Well, we should also then just use some of those physics libraries and things like that that make it really easy to make something like a ball fly around the screen yeah. or something like that. That they probably love that kind of stuff, wouldn't they? Sure. Anything visual, they love doing yeah. visual stuff. But I I you know, like Marco kept asking about um he wanted to do graphical things. Yeah, you know, and he was always disappointed when we weren't doing that. And I, you know, and part of it was just having to spend more time integrating graphics libraries into the Catalyst IDE, which which would be ridiculously easy if it was just one page. You included jQuery or whatever, and then I don't know Raphael or something like that. I think I think we go a long way with something simple like Raphael. I mean, just putting points, plotting things. Well, the good thing is, is that they would love to just draw, try and draw stuff with it. I mean, okay, so having. And uh, uh, the Catalyst Sandbox IDE is really awesome if you can get it fully working. The problem is it just takes a ton of work. And, I, and, I, and, I, and the, given how, much, how many other projects and things that I'm already committed to, um, I would either, a, either end up not doing the work on that that I want to do or end up not doing the work on these other projects that I've committed to. Yeah. And I'm starting to think that um, if we just are willing to spend a little time configuring these individual machines then we're not limited by anything, right? If we want to do something, it's like, oh, we're playing with this library, we install machines. If it turns out that library was, the kids didn't get it, it was hard, then nah, screw it, we'll do something next week. Hmm. Like we can, just, we can just adjust and not be limited. And then, and then the kids can develop locally on their machines and we don't have to worry about the Wi-Fi stuff so much, right? And the Wi-Fi will just be used as like, okay, if you need to go to a website and, and get some information or download, so it's not like everybody's, everybody has two connections open and it's yeah. just killing the uh the hot spots well um why don't we move on to some of the links or something else sure um 
Let's see, well, I got all kind of... So, um, should we talk about Tesla? Yes. So this morning, Sandy, uh, Sandy asks me, she goes, so have you seen Tesla? And I, you know, I just, yeah. up, so obviously I hadn't. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it had jumped, it was up, I don't know where it is right now, but it had jumped up to like $177, 179. It was almost at 180. You, and you were in at what, like 35 or something? 32. Oh, Jeez. Yeah. So, um, I mean that is amazing because what happened is Deutsche Bank, um, they put a price target at two hundred, and they wrote a big article. I mean they really went into the numbers and they just said, look, you know, they're anticipating twenty five percent margins in the fourth quarter. They're twenty percent this quarter, so they're scaling, but they're also keeping their costs under control. So they're they're having fantastic margins. Hmm. And now I think it was BMW said they're going to get in the game and create like some thirty thousand dollar electric car that can drive two hundred kilometers or 200 miles or something like that so and that's just sort of proving out so if been bmw and gm and everything all those other big behemoths are like oh well we can't let we can't allow tesla to have the space all to themselves forever but it's validating it and then elon all along has been like look we want everybody in this space hmm. right like we don't want to be the only electric car company because that's because the more car companies that you have not doing that it just seems like this weird niche product and his he wants to change the world he's not like oh i just want to make more billions he's like i want to change the world i want mm. to get us off fossil fuels i want to get sustainable you know um transportation whether it's you know reliance on oil that is will ultimately run out or whether it's you know the effects on climate or you know the the geopolitical issues that are that are totally uh a result of of our dependence on it i mean so i think he's all for it but it also, of course, puts Tesla as the leader, as the leader right? Mm. Tesla still makes the best stuff. Yeah, no, it's great. So, um, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm mad that I didn't put like some sensible <laughs> cash in rather than just buy one share, you know. But, <laughs> but um, you did the one share because you just wanted to see how to do it. I just want to see how to do it, yeah. And then you just, after that, you just didn't have any cash that you wanted mm. to put into it. But you have cash. You just have it in other places. Yeah. You just didn't really... I would like to do... I'm still a bit like... I would like to dabble and buy a few shares or whatever, but I'm still a bit dubious about, you know, just a bit... Not dubious. I'm just uh, not confident in my ability to choose good stock. And I know you've said well, all wouldn't. the time... I wouldn't go choosing stocks. I mean, I would only... Yeah. I would only put money in things well, that you are so excited the, about. Yeah. That's the part that I'm not... So, so in that case, it's like if you don't see anything. I, this is just my personal philosophy. If I don't see something that I think is so unbelievable that I that I can't stop myself, then I don't do it. Otherwise, mm. you're just forcing yourself to try and believe in something. Like, oh, well, it seems pretty good. Oh, yeah, I don't really know anything like that. That's kind of IPO'd and on the stock market. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, other than Tesla. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, I, like, I'm kind of reticent to put money into Tesla because it seems like. Well, you you were in at thirty five. Now it's one hundred and seventy. It just feels like well, if I start buying these things at one seventy, what's it going to do? Double, you know, at the, the, the max. Like that just doesn't seem like much to me. Even may, if, yeah, well, that's that's a lot. I mean, you know, you you don't usually invest in the stock market think you're going to get like a ten x return, right? You're you're trying to beat your two percent that you're getting. Right? Is that what the, it is? Yeah, I mean, okay. yeah. I mean, you know, people are trying to get. I mean, if you could get ten percent a year, eight percent, you'd be doing great. Mm. You know, because there is risk involved. And so either you'd go really risky. Now, putting a lot of money in like one or two stocks is obviously very risky. But, you know, like I said, I, I invested it because I just thought it was a 
you know, brain dead, obvious thing to do. Mm. Um, you know, obviously I could have been wrong. Yeah. That's why you never, it's like you never bet what you can't afford to lose. And the same goes for investing. Don't invest more than you don't invest so much that you would be really sad and depressed or financially compromised if it just went to zero or something. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're being irresponsible. Well, <clears throat> that has definitely worked out and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in the future. You know, the, uh, oh, the other thing about Tesla, there's a, um, there's an article on Engadget that, uh, um, they're uh, looking to, and then I, get, I think Elon was um, was uh, advertising this on, um, or we're tweeting about it. They're trying to hire engineers because they're going to have self-driving cars, their autopilot car project, and there's a t they're they're targeting ninety percent of miles driven in three years from now. What do you mean ninety percent of miles driven? What does that mean? So most of you, mo most of the time you're driving that's on autopilot. It's just going to drive itself. Yeah. But, you know, you might handle it in certain cases, but it's mostly kind of like cruise control, but... So are they going to partner with um, Google or nope. they're just going to do the whole thing themselves? They're going their own way. Hmm. So they're building a team. I'm just like, yeah, that would be a great place to work. If you're like, if you have any expertise at AI and stuff like that, I'd be, you should send your resume to, to Tesla. Because he said you're going to be reporting directly to him. I was having discussion about this um, with, some, with some people yesterday. And they really didn't believe. I was saying, look, in 10, 15 years time, like this is going to be the norm. Like cars are going to be driving themselves. Like I really do think that in 15 years time, like the bulk of the cars on the road. In fact, I think that there could be a point where you're not allowed to drive a car on the road anymore. Like because it'd be really frustrating for people like me who like to drive. Right. For people like you who don't drive, you're probably like fine with it. Or alternatively, they could like split the road up and say these, these are the lanes that, you know, are auto drive and these are the lanes where normal people are driving. But the problem is, is auto driving is going to be so much better than real driving. You, you know, you saw that whole intersection simulation, right? Did you see that? No. Oh, so someone had done like an ex basically an example simulation of how an intersection would work with if cars were driving themselves, and what they would do is they'd have servers at the sim at servers uh, on the each corner of this intersection. So a car would come up, and this would be like an open protocol, and the car would basically say, okay. You know, is there, is there a slot open for me to go? Yes. And it would look like chaos and madness, but between them, they'd be working themselves out. So there'd be no traffic lights. You it'd know? be super efficient. It'd be super efficient and, and they'd be kind of jerking a bit about a bit, but it would be super efficient system, especially if it was managed at the intersection level. Interesting. <laughs> the only problem is, of course, hackers getting in. Right, right. And, uh, you know, and, and wreaking havoc in an intersection like that. that that's the whole thing is you got to make these things have to be really battle-hardened. Well, they they cannot be, be compromised by the no, NSA no, or anybody. NSA, no. The NSA can't be allowed to put back doors in there for yeah. themselves because you put back doors in the for the government, then the hackers can find the same back doors. Yeah, not yeah. that there isn't a reason for the government not to have it anyway, but just just saying like that's it's an yeah. interesting concept. So basically, your car has autonomy because the world around it, like I guess it's the Internet of Things. So as you're driving around that your your car's talking to other servers that it's passing and then that's giving it information about how it should react. Right. And other cars as well. So your car, it's like a mesh network. So your car talks to the car behind it, talks to the car in front of it, and you all kind of collectively agree what you're going to do. And so traffic just becomes much more efficient. Well, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, in those uh, in science fiction movies, you'd have like a spaceship that would be docking with like a bigger spaceship mm -hmm. or a, or a um, space station, and the big space station would sort of pull in with like a tractor beam, would take over or would take over. Right. It would say, look, you know, it would pull it in. It wouldn't allow. Remember, like in um, 
Star Wars, the Death Star took over the Millennium Falcon's controls. Like they lose your controls when she yeah. gets her close and it just takes over. <laughs> I think it's the same kind of thing, right? So yeah. rather than taking over with a, uh, you know, some sort of, you know, external force, it just takes over internal controls via Wi-Fi. It says, okay. So you'd have to build, I mean, I guess one thing that speaks against that is open standards are like very difficult to ever come into the real world in a big way. So where would an open standard like that come from? Who would create it? I think you could see stuff like that in some smaller countries, um, more advanced country, uh, smaller first world, technically um, mm. progressive countries like maybe North Korea, Finland, Norway, comp- countries like North that. North Korea. I mean, not Korea, South Korea. Sorry, yeah. South Korea. Right. Um, you know, maybe Japan, but countries like that that could they could that they might pull that off. Well, actually, it would it would serve them really well because I mean, you know, in Japan, I mean, they obviously have that space problem anyway. Yeah. So that that kind of optimization would be pretty big for them. Yeah, uh, I, I could see those countries doing it. The same kind of in Germany, maybe the same countries that. We're able to get like the bullet trains going. We'd probably mm. be the first countries that be able to get something like this going. So what you got for what you got for us next? I got well another related thing is um, there's an article in Business Week it says Elon Musk's Hyperloop will work. Says some very smart software. Mm. So uh, Ansys, which makes this very high end uh, simulation software for simulating engineering systems, um, they put in all of the. Um, the sort of uh, the specifications for the Hyperloop, and they say, yeah, it should work. I mean, they might need some tweaks in here and there. There was some, there was some uh, st- stress in certain parts of the system where that could be, if it was changed a little bit, and, how, and, the, and maybe the shape or whatever, it would reduce that. But I said overall, it should work. Hmm. So, you know, wow, another another thumbs up for the Hyperloop. So that could, I mean, that could be a, a new Musk company, and which would be great because then that's going to IPO, and then we can get in. At, at, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't think he really wants to to do it. I think, I mean, personally, I think he's just too. I think he's run ragged just running Tesla and SpaceX, yeah. right? I think he would be the kind of person that would probably put money in it and sit on the board, like he does with um, um, Solar, Solar City. City. Yeah, you know, I think he's he doesn't need any more credit. I mean, I mean, he's got credit coming out of his ears. He just wants stuff to happen. He just wants stuff to happen, and um, I think he. He could put money in it, and uh, you know, be one of the fa- one of the founding investors, and sit on the board, and that would be more than enough for him. Well, I mean, it sounds like he'd be happy not having any direct relationship to it. But I mean, I think it would um, lend credibility to it if he yeah. got involved. I mean, people are now looking at Elon Musk like the new Steve Jobs, like the guy can do no wrong. And so, when he gets involved in a project, even if it seems like there's very outside chances thing could work that you get him involved, it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Whether it's PayPal, Tiller City, Tesla, SpaceX, I mean, these things that just seemed like, you know, sh- you know, just <laughs> low probability shots in the dark that all of a sudden he just makes them work. Mm. And, and Hyperloop certainly is of that category, right? I think his skill is um, kind of breaking past barriers that seem impossible, like... Right, you know, like financial regulations and just other things that pe- other people would just think, oh, that's too scary a space for me to get into. I don't, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, I think more than the financial regulations, but I think it has to do with um, looking at first principles, which he talks about a lot, is is reasoning via first principles and not via just analogies. Mm. Well, they did this, so this is how it should work. He's like, well, what are the limiting physical principles? What are the re- equations? Do the equations say that it's not impo- that it's impossible? No, 
then that means it's possible. Okay. So we know by first principles this can work. We know how much this costs. We know how much this takes. We know what Yeah, this, but you still have to convince all the other people involved and the other people that you need to get involved to do it. Like well, the that's, thing, the that's the thing, thing is, that he can do. Well, that's true. But the good thing is when you're a billionaire, you don't yeah. have to do a lot of convincing. You can kind of fund it yourself mostly, which is what he did with SpaceX. And that's what he did with um, uh, Tesla. And uh, that's what he did to a large degree with PayPal. Well, PayPal before was X.com, which bought Confinity, which is what But uh, I mean, okay, we're, maybe we're talking across tangents, but the kind of things I'm talking about are the regu- let's say banking regulations around the world. That must have been incredible push to make that happen and then for example with spacex you know cutting a deal with nasa i mean that must have been an incredible push you know it must have been so difficult to get through all of the red tape and make that shit happen and with cars like you know cutting deals would be like all that stuff he just seems to cut yeah no i think he has i well i agree too i I just think that it's like he wouldn't he just doesn't give up yeah i I agree i i think that he absolutely excels at his business acumen, yeah. but it's it's married to his engineering acumen, his ability to see past uh, what other people think is impossible because he actually can look at the equations and understand them. Yeah, you know, he doesn't just go, "Well, that would have been done if if that was possible, and somebody would have done it," right? Which is actually just sort of stupid thinking, and that's how humans behave all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, you know, I mean, it's just a heuristic. I mean, yeah, if nobody's ever done it, it's there's a the probability is it's not possible, but doesn't mean it's not possible, right? And uh, but you're right. I think he has those two those two abilities. And then of course, you know, once you have one success, and you can leverage off that, mm-hmm. people money. start to believe you a bit more as well. When you've made a few impossible things happen, and you come and you come and say, "Look, I want to do this impossible thing," people will be like, "Well, maybe you could do that impossible thing because you just did those three other impossible things." Yeah, I started to believe he's got the <laughs> he's the impossibility engine, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, anyway, oh, speaking of impossibilities, um, or uh, I don't know how to put this, but there is a uh, article in, in Sky.com, um, and that's an English um, news site, right? Sky? Sky.com, Sky yeah. Yeah. So, alien bugs discovered in Earth's atmosphere. Wow. So, apparently, um, some tiny organisms were discovered um, by the University of Sheffield uh, by, some, uh, by some scientists who are running an experiment on a research balloon that they had sent to, to roughly 27 kilometers and uh, into the atmosphere. And it was to, it was, I always got some information about the pair, it was a pear seeds meteor shower. Mm-hmm. And so it came back and it had these microscopic organisms on there. And they said they, they did a lot to make sure that it wasn't contaminated or whatever. And that also there's, there's no physical mechanism that could take these mechanisms to 27 kilometers into the atmosphere. And this is, uh, and the findings are going to be published in the Journal of Cosmology. So they didn't say like what whether it has DNA kind of thing or. Well, as they said, they're organisms. Yeah, I mean, if they're organisms, then they have DNA. So that's interesting. So they, they, their, their, their contention is these these scientists at the University of Sheffield is that um, these were organisms that are a form of life that are not from Earth that 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 are a result of these of this meteor shower, and it's the only other way that you ever get organisms. Like that, that high in the atmosphere is after a volcano eruption, but there hasn't been a volcano eruption anywhere remotely in the in that part of the world in three years. So, what would that mean? That mean that that life is um, probably much more common in the universe than than our current. Uh, yeah, because if some random meteor shower had it, 
<laughs> well, there's a general theory. I mean, there there is a theory of panspermia, which is that um, life may have originated as a result of meteors. That maybe it didn't even originate on Earth. Maybe it was, um, yeah, you know, meteors or asteroids or whatever crashing the Earth, and that there were tiny little organisms that may have originated from another part of the uh, galaxy. Yeah, or that anyway that evolution of 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 at least very simple life might be very common. I mean, as I mean, first they thought that planets. I mean, it wasn't until very recently, to like the last, you know, and I'm even talking like five years that they thought that planets were pretty um, uncommon, mm. especially Earth-like planets. They said, mm. "Oh, well, there might be planets." Then they said, "Oh, well, there might be planets, but the planets are these huge gas giants that could never support Earth, that never support life." And then they're like, and then once they got telescopes to find it, and they were able to figure out. Um, techniques to determine that there were plant that there, there are planets orbiting a sun by looking at its pull on the you know gravity the gravitational effect on the on the the sun and yeah. on, the, on the star and all that kind of stuff so now it's like wow now it's not only are there lots of planets, everywhere lots of exoplanets that are very similar to earth mm-hmm. and they might be everywhere and so <laughs> there are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy alone there are hundreds of billions of galaxies and it seems that that planets are the norm and not only that, that exoplanets are extremely common. And then it might be the case that, um, simple life forms, um, you know, may be common, but there's the, but it's even looking, this is another piece of evidence that might show that they at least exist. Yeah. External to the, uh, to the U S to the, that would be awesome. So, so when's that going to be published? Uh, well, I mean, it's getting published in the Journal of Cosmology. So unless you subscribe to Journal of Cosmology, I think this is all you hear about it for well, now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll hear about it when it comes out then. Yeah. I guess yeah. once a month probably. Yeah, yeah. So, um... Cool. I need to talk about the hell that is the iOS Developer Center. Mm-hmm. Tell me why that is the hell. I, you know, it's like, have you how much experience have you had dealing with certificates... Provisioning yeah. profiles. I hate it. Yeah, it's re- it's very frustrating, and it's and it's not it's it's not obvious in any sense. And like the the help pages that they have are like these kind of two foot scrolling pages. With two like, foot, I like ten feet. Yeah, and like difference. Like, like do this and do this and do this and do this, and it's like wow, what a nightmare. So I had I had gotten a uh, you know the whole thing set up with the provisioning profile yeah. and distribution profile, whatever the hell that stuff is called like a year ago and that was on another machine and so i had to get my download my certificates uh, my developer certificates or whatever and now i can't get the provision profiles to work it's like things are invalid identities are invalid so now i'm like okay and i gotta do something where i have to like, i have to generate some some new keys and yeah. go through this whole process again and it just eats up so many hours eats up time like this this is actually what i need any food for i wish there was an ios person i could just hire for an hour i'm like dude just log into my machine and walk me through this in an hour i, I do not want to dick around with this for the next you know couple days i'm just it just because it's stupid i mean because it's like it, I, i'm sure i could write down the steps and still well, remember it but i just don't want to go you bring it. up an interesting point because this isn't this is a, a discussion stroke argument that we've had about any food for a long time because i wish that I could get someone like that on any foo. But the way that as we've we've done it, that could never happen because we're only going for, you know, the highest of the high who write books. But I do believe that there's this strata of expert who's like in between, like us, people like us, there's loads of them out there who could really help with individual things. They haven't written a book or something, 
but it'd be but you can't go to elance and find someone like that you know you can't go to well you maybe you can but it's not so easy like the, you know the whole place where there's two dollars an hour so i think there's like this middle ground of like how do i get these really high level people to do these kind of small tasks well you know you know what i think maybe you could do on um any food you could have your premier experts and then you could have normal experts hmm. right so it's kind of like you have your vetted you're vetted it's almost like your apple featured apps mm. you know or you, you know how like um toyota has their lexus line yeah and they're regular toyota so it's like okay if if you're a company and 300 dollars an hour or 250 dollars an hour is not remotely an issue but you need to have the stamp of approval but this is a world-class expert so if this world-class expert is telling us about how to deploy Redis, I can turn around and tell the CTO we're doing it because Josiah, who wrote the book on mm. Redis, told us to do it that way. Everyone's butts are covered. But for people who are like, look, I, you know, I, I don't care if it's a world-class effort. It's just me or it's just our little five-person startup. And yeah, $250 is a big deal, but I can afford you know, 100 or 75 I would much rather talk to somebody who's a competent uh, iOS developer who could just walk me through this stuff. Exactly. And there's so many times. And in fact, every time I've had an Anyfoo experience, even when I first brought up this whole concept to you, um, the people that I used were not like people who'd written books or anything. They were just people who were, who were like us, our kind of level of expert. I think, And I think that that would really open up the market then as well because there's so many more people like that in the world. Yeah, well, mm. I'm, I'm open to it if we could... We could um, we would still have to approve them. And it might yeah. be probably, we still have to approve them. Like you have to give us, it has to at least show that you have some basic skill. But then there's people who are the um, certified premier experts. Yeah. Who have a distinction. Know, and, and then we have the, you know, there's first class. Yeah. And then there's coach or business class or whatever. There's everybody else. Now these, not that these people aren't, you know, um, that they don't know what they're talking about. It's just that we can't guarantee that. But I mean, think about it because that's like, then you could get people to do piecemeal things. Like even for example, sysadmin, right? I would be super happy to pay 75 bucks, hundred bucks an hour for a sysadmin. If I could just kind of have some access to get them for that, that like there's, there's no, once again, there's no really good way, no really good site to get totally hot sysops people, you know? That kind of thing. I think there's a massive market potential for that level of work. And yeah, this kind of I mean, I would, uh, I would pay someone in a minute. To, yeah. I mean, I would pay them the any foo rates, whatever. If someone get me through and, and spend an hour, and I'm just but, done. But with the all person this who stuff. wrote the book isn't going to want to do that. That do you know what I'm saying? Like, like this is the other problem with that with that approach. Like, someone who writes a book about iOS, you 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 click a button, you pay them two hundred bucks. Hey, will you help me set up my certificates? They'll be like, "No, I won't." <laughs> no, I'll I'll consult with you on top level things about your, you know, your iPhone strategy, but I'm not going to help you set up your certificates. Yeah, you know? that's a, that's 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 reasonable. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think that's good. So, I mean, in regards to bringing on a uh, a third partner mm-hmm. to grow to grow Anyfu, someone who's actually going to do the marketing and do the, you know, the business development stuff. Um, so we've heard, we've heard from two people with, with real interest. Um, we haven't gone further than the, the initial contact. So I really hope we can get somebody in who can do this stuff. What I'd like to do is I'd like to have somebody who is motivated and somewhat knowledgeable about the stuff. They don't have to be a 
like a, an expert they've already bl- you know blown up one startup right because the, that type of person may be hard to find but someone who's at least a good thinker and isn't totally new to the game you know yeah. someone who's like okay you know and, and is this just sort of aggressive and can try lots of stuff mm-hmm. right and but you know i was you know it would be the easy easy if like once a week or once every couple of weeks we we had like a little call and say here are like 10 different ideas we've all been we've been mulling over how do we leverage youtube for making videos mm-hmm. on this how do we leverage Quora? how do we maybe we could do this maybe we could do this like here are 10 different things or that we've that other startups are used to see could this work for any of you how would we look at it and this person could say oh, you know and they could say okay i heard all these ideas i'm gonna take these three that i'm wrong with for the next couple of weeks work on it you know and they could just do i think the other point to note is that if we did get a business partner like that we would still you know do development we'd be happy to do the uh, projects build out little pieces of functionality like it really we just need a, a, the business person in there to kind of inspire us to get back into it is the main thing, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like it's hard for it's hard for me to get motivated on spending a lot, investing a lot more hours into building out the infrastructure or whatever if there's nothing happening on the marketing. When I know, in fact, the marketing is really the most important piece, mm-hmm. right? But if someone says, "Hey, you know, I took your guys' idea. I think we can get a bunch of." non premier experts on there really quickly and i think that will roll into the marketing side and i've done this and this and i got you know and, and oh as a result of this we got 10 transactions coming this week i'd be like and he said oh jason you know uh, you know you're talking about building this more automated emailing you know system based on you know what's going on can you do that? i'd be like yeah let's knock that out i'd be motivated to do that right but if none of that's happening it just doesn't seem to be a great use of my time i mean the, the like the non-premier experts idea is, is so good because there would just be much more throughput. We'd make much more cash because there's a lot more tasks like that than there are like, you know, high level, just strategic discussions. There's a lot more tasks where you're just looking for an expert. Come on, come in. Yes, do it. Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah, it might work. I mean, we can marry them and there'd be yeah. the combination. So yeah, if if you are that person or you're, uh, you know that person, who that person would be, then uh, get in touch with us. I mean, when then we can have a discussion about how we would integrate them as a partner. I mean, I think, you know, the specifics of that, you know, we could probably kind of flexible, but obviously we'd have to have someone have to spend some, it'd have to invest some time and we'd probably have like a little bit of investing schedule because obviously, you know, I wouldn't want someone to come in there and spend six weeks of work and then they bail. Yeah. They find somebody else. It's like, okay, now this person has some ownership even though they really didn't, they only did this for uh, two or three months and then they- No, investing schedule, like any standard, you know, initial kind of, startup when yeah. you work with any startup it's best invested. yeah but yeah but if, if somebody is willing to put in the time and effort i mean uh yeah we could make a good deal for them mm. and uh and the fact is how far along any food already is in terms of its brand and its concept and its and the code and its infrastructure and all that stuff is in, in the in the just all the pieces are in place i mean it's functional i mean that's a long that's a you long could almost way. potentially make the deal performance-based. I'm, I'm not going to say too much about it, but that would be kind of cool, you know, like so the, the more success that they brought to the business, you know. Well, yeah, that too. But, I mean, you could accelerate vesting schedules yeah. based on that. And, yeah. yeah, you could do all kind of things. But whatever, I mean, either way, um, <coughs> we need to find somebody. I mean, it's funny because, Bill, like, Bill Gross, when I when I had showed him Anifu and uh, Digidoo and Plugio, like he said... I really like that Anyfoo idea. Hmm. You know, that was the one that really struck out to him. Like that made sense to him. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's a need. It just needs to be solved. It's solved the right way. 
So mm. I don't know. I've been, I've been getting more enthusiastic about the idea. Just, just after you and I decided that we'd bring on a third partner. Yeah. If we can bring on the right third partner, I think it would, it would make all the difference. Yeah. Agreed. You know, and, uh, you know, it, 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 we're so far along now that it wouldn't take that much more coding to make a big difference. There's different pieces that be built oh, yeah. out. You know, five hours here, ten hours there, and you know, no, it's it's marketing and growth hacking. That, that's what the whole business is right now to move forward with it. Yeah. All right, you got any more? Um, oh, I got all kind of stuff. Um, so I I got maybe another fifteen minutes. Okay. All right. So um, let's see what I want to talk about. Um, okay. A couple things. Um, so Duncan, uh, Murtaugh emailed me, uh, there were, uh, uh, he forwarded me a, um, an email from startup digest and they, I guess once a week they send out like a list of articles for yeah. very startup stuff. And at the very top of it, it was like, be sure to read how to increase your luck surface area. The, yeah, look, yeah. Be sure to read how to increase your luck surface area. Well, not directly startup related. It's been one of my most useful posts during my startup journey. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Did you write that post? What? How, the post, how to increase your... Because I, I, I don't remember if you've ever written a post yes. about it. Yeah. I thought someone else wrote a post about no, it. No, 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 no. I, well, I talk, we talked about it on the show. Yeah. And then um, Lance Jones, uh, he wrote a post that referenced it. I see. And yeah. so then I said, I guess I better go yeah, right. and write the the actual defining post, like this is what the concept is. And then I got an email from um, Matthew Zadrozny. Um, he's at the mattheweffect.org. And he asked permission to use the Lux Surface Area graph. Because nice. uh, he's writing an ar- article called um, Increase Your Luck Through Doing and Telling. So he mentioned me, and there's also a guy who was talking about, uh, you know, in the context of, of research, of doing research and publishing and how that, rolls into your career and how that works. It's sort of similar to increase your look surface area. Yeah. And, um, anyway, that was nice. That was super cool. Yeah. The luck surface area has its own look surface. area. It's like this meta, it's like this recursive meta loop. It's got legs. It's got legs. <laughs> funny. Yeah. Um, so I was listening to, uh, this American life mm-hmm. this past week. And there is a story about this guy who was a, um, Bosnian refugee. It's just talking about, and it's sort of narrated, a lot of part of it's narrated by Michael Lewis, who wrote Liar's Poker, Moneyball, I think The Big Short, and, yeah. uh, and he's a very well-known writer. And um, so this guy, he after he they escape Bosnia just in time, or just barely, and they get placed in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I grew up, and they're in this Clarkston, which is not what year? the greatest area. This is in the uh, early 90s, mm-hmm. early mid-90s. And he gets stuck in, I think it was Clarkston. I, I can't remember the high school, but it's in Clarkston. And it's, you know, it's, and it looked like it was kind of a bad school. Not really bad, but, and, you know, kind of bad. And anyway, he tells a story about how he was plucked out of there by this teacher who was a, um, like a, a substitute who was, you know, filling in for a teacher who, I don't know if she's off for, for um, health reasons or whatever, but for part of the year. And she came up to him and she's like, you don't belong here. You need to get out of here. And so she took him to interview at this, talked about this amazing school with his manicured lungs, a beautiful mansion. And I'm like, talking about Padilla. 
which is where I went to high school. Right. Like right. he just said, we took him to this amazing. I like they're gonna mention this Padilla. I know they're gonna mention <laughs> the Padilla school. Yeah. <laughs> like that's my high school. Nice. And um, so it was hilarious. And so anyway, he, hearing that, and then he goes. Uh, he goes to school there, and apparently after that, he goes to Harvard, and then gets his PhD at Harvard, and now he's this rising star economist, behavioral economist at University of Chicago, which <laughs> I went to college. <laughs> nice. So it was just amazing. And um, he, uh, you know, he was there a few years after. I graduated in 89, so he was there in the, I think he graduated high school in 95 mm. or something like that. Um, so he... And, and they were talking about how amazing he was at math. So he definitely worked with Steve Segura, that professor of mine I've talked about. Mm-hmm. And I've talked yeah. about how Steve is sort of like the academic father of an incredible number of amazing people. I mean, even on the list, like, and we talked about the best programmer at, uh, at um, Google, Jeff Dean, mm. was two years ahead of me in high school and worked with Steve. And he gave my first lesson in Pascal and Jeff Brock and uh, Ken Lau. I mean, all these amazing people who are mathematicians and physicists and computer scientists and just doing amazing things all came from this one high school and all worked with Steve. Steve was like, he was like a combination between like Buddha and Einstein or something. He's like this <laughs> physicist who just had this crazy, his, his, his classroom wasn't like a normal classroom. It was just a bunch of tables and like just all these crazy like math posters and and machines and also like oscilloscopes and and you know you just look at you and be like what are you doing okay you need to start learning galois theory you're like what's galois theory don't worry about it here's a paper read this and the writer you're like okay <laughs> next thing you know you're doing your own research on something right and he's guiding you like he's your phd advisor mm-hmm. you know he's not like oh i want you to get an a on this next section of math he's like i don't, I don't care about that you're going to uh, learn this programming language or you're gonna you know you're gonna build you know learn this branch of math and you're gonna write a paper on it and he's an amazing guy like just an inspired teacher unbelievable i mean and uh, i bet you it's too bad they didn't talk about it on the show but because i think you know obviously padea was just one part of it and he didn't talk about his experience at padea other than it was an amazing life-changing thing for him um and uh but i'll bet you anything i would love to get in touch with him and be like what was steve Seeger's impact on you and he'll yeah. probably be like Steve was my mentor, obviously. <laughs> of course he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought that was pretty... Uh, nice. Pretty awesome. Um, so, you know, we're talking about... I, I don't want to get too into this because we've, we've covered it quite a bit uh, lately, but uh, the whole Syria thing. So we dodged a bullet that we didn't attack Syria. Well, that was weird. Like, it, it came out in the press and, like, the whole thing about... Just the whole way it happened with John Kerry, you know? Like, he's going out drum-beating, drum-beating, drum-beating. Yeah. We got to attack, we got to attack. Uh, but by, but but by the be- way, if they did this, well, then we'd call it off. And they did that. Well, actually, somebody <laughs> in a press conference raised a question, like, and he kind of just answered it incorrectly. He just said, well, what if, what what, what could possibly stop the invasion? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, I suppose if they didn't have chemical weapons. Yeah. And then Russia shows up two days later, like, you know, maybe we can make that happen. <laughs> and they're like, oh, crap. Yeah. Because now they can't. The U.S., it's not really about that. Chemical. Yeah, I know. That's just an excuse. That's just yeah. the new weapons of mass destruction. It's the Iraq thing. They want to uh topple the regime right. and, and, and they, they're trying to dress up aggressive uh war as a humanitarian invention so and, and the fact that, that russia came up and says oh we can make this happen they're just like damn it you know yeah. and uh, now it, so that now they need to find another reason to go to war with yeah them. i would say like we dodged a bullet but this gun has more than one bullet 
So, you know, the CIA has been training rebels, um, you know, with anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons since late 2012. That's in, you know, Jerusalem Post. And the CNS talking about how the Pentagon is proposing training, equipping, quote, moderate Syrian res- uh, rebels. So, and then Israel just came out in Reuters and uh, their uh, the ambassador, um, Michael Oren, he just um, came out and said, uh, you know, they're calling for Assad's fall. So, I mean, it, so it started to find a are, new way. People are showing new, their true colors, right? Yeah. Israel wants regime change. The U.S. Mo- at the at, at the um, most likely for Israel, but also for you know its own you know reasons. You know, uh, are, you know, is, is actually tr- looking for regime change. Yeah. So it, it ain't over, right? right? It's just been pushed. They, we've kicked the can down the street a little bit, and we're gonna you know do the little you know uh, you know try and uh, train well, and army rebels. There uh, wasn't. No, oh, I was just going to say um, that there wasn't very much like pushback about us being that political or you being that political in that show. I was expecting some, you know, more aggressive arguments on the. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think most people are are kind of coming in. I mean, the reason that we didn't attack, and the re- the, and the reason that that um, wasn't just because of that 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 Russia gave us out is because the vast majority of the population, the U.S. population, didn't was against it. it. Yeah, but, like yeah. they were over. The Middle Eastern wars. Yeah. We're tired of your your bullshit reasons. We don't want more Afghanistan. We don't want more Libya. We don't want another Iraq. We're done. We're over. This has cost us trillions of dollars. And where's it got us? Nowhere. You know. And and uh, even though there was the lobbyists, you know, the APAC lobbyists, and and the push from you know Saudi Arabia and Qatar and all of them. I mean, that just at the end of the day, when all of your constituents are calling in and emailing and tweeting when they don't want this. The politicians, they ultimately know that it doesn't matter how much money they raise, but if their constituents hate something and you do it anyway, that you could end up being losing your seat. Yeah. So speaking of that, you were asking me like, well, what should you do? Like, how should you call or send a letter or whatever? So I tweeted at my rep, my, rep, my uh, congressional representative or, or, you know, which is uh, Judy Chu. <laughs> okay. So I looked up who it was because I, I didn't even know who it was. I thought it was Adam Schiff, but I guess they've redistricted. So he's not... He's not our rep anymore. And um, so Judy Chu had just sent a, uh, just tweeted that it was on 9-11. And she tweeted like, we never forget. We will always remember. We never, never forget. Yeah. You know? And I said, and so my tweet at her was, sure, as long as it's not used to justify more civil liberties violations, NSA, et cetera, or more war, aggressive war, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. Yeah. So I think the at tweet is the new best way. Okay. Because it's public. It's easy. It's public. Yeah. It's easy. It's personal. It's obviously on a form. And they're going to see it. Yeah. You know, it's not like their staff person is, can go through the emails and say, oh, okay, read these emails. Don't read these emails. It's, it's right smack on their, it's, it's like graffiti on their, on their front lawn. It's incredible. It's like, it's almost like you've thought of the, this new revolution using Twitter, using at symbols. It's like the new Twitter <laughs> revolution. I mean, you are so... Like I am with it, aren't I? You no, like, but I mean, that's I mean, amazing. But I mean, I think in terms of uh, contacting a representative, yeah, because people think, oh God, I don't want to, have to write a letter and mail. It seems so annoying, True, right? Just, think, just and I feel like they're just going to get ignored. Yeah, it's just at tweet them, at tweet them. Because I've noticed on Twitter all the time, I see these people who have hundreds of thousands of followers 
and they reply to ad tweets from and I look at the ad tweets they get in discussion these people have like 40 followers I love the way you call it ad tweet that's that's what very sweet direct their mentions mentions <laughs> it's mentions but that's okay. very sweet an ad tweet I like that okay an ad tweet whatever ad tweet. I mentioned. No, no, I'm just going. I'm going to use it to say that in future. At tweet, <laughs> it's the at tweet. Okay, well that's good. That's good. I'm going on at tweet. So uh, I just thought that was great. So like, you, you just, you know, because the, they're just going to get annoyed. So if 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 Judy Chu, whoever, if they had got a hundred thousand like, people at tweeted them, dude, I mean, break their Twitter. <laughs> but <laughs> they'd even be if, even if you had like twenty, twenty people, if twenty people at tweet them over a few days, they'd be like. Jesus, you know, like... Yeah, I, why does this keep on coming to me? And they'd notice it because the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It does. I'm telling you. Do you and, that's could, why, and that's why the war was called off because you're talking about like, well, what can we do? What can we stop it? You know, that's why you pay attention to news. You pay attention to news because stuff like this, you have to respond to it. And if you respond to it, you can stop a war. Do you think we could change Obama's mind if we got like 25 people to at tweet him? Well, probably not. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but the way you can do it much more easily is you at tweet your congressional representative or or your or your senator right well you, it's the same you, as the whole pr thing you start on the local level and then you get you know you go more centralized so you start with your local newspapers and then once you've pr'd your local newspapers then you say to the state newspapers oh well look we're really larger one yeah. yeah yeah so we similar kind of theory well, with you, tweets. you could also be like guerrilla warfare you take off that guy at the end of the of the line you take a gorilla you take him out one at a time you remember um nice. last of the mohicans yeah yeah where they had the british kind of marching through and then they would just like, take a few <laughs> and take a few and get up you know? yeah so anyway i thought that was kind of funny i was i was proud of myself Nicely done. i tweeted <laughs> that, i mean i think that's probably the reason that the war didn't happen I, because of your tweet i yeah i would imagine i would probably i'll take credit for that sure why not <laughs> Um, <laughs> All right. Well, um, give us something to uh, finish up on. Let's see. Let me just let me just check here. Um, let me make sure there's no. Oh, so um, Andrew Griffiths uh, emailed us about this new HTML5 framework called Famous. So it's mm. famous, but it's F A M dot no F A no F A M O F A M O dot U S. Yeah, yeah. It's famous with a dot U S. And it's a JavaScript engine that solves HTML performance issues because we've talked about that on a couple of shows, right? You talked about it with Splitsville, and I talked about last, uh, I think the last show or the show before that about how LinkedIn tried to do stuff with HTML5 and they left it because it was too slow yeah. or whatever. And this, I watched a video on this thing on this demo. It was unbelievable. They're getting between forty and sixty frames per second on phones and tablets and computers, even lower end phones. Um, there's no plugins, no WebGL, no Canvas. Everything is DOM. And it's like these weird three-dimensional gravity-like physics engine. It is unbelievable. I, I, it's, it seems like some kind of um, voodoo because it's, it's, they're not using CSS no transitions. Yeah, right, no, right. no CSS transitions, no, nothing vector, nothing. What was the other thing that you just said? WebGL, Canvas, no, WebGL. No, no plugins. So what, what's left? I mean, <laughs> you know, like how do you do what they're, what they're doing? It seems really strange. Other than, I don't know, creating bitmaps on the fly or something. I mean, I don't, I don't even understand. I don't know. Either way, it's it's they got some mad skills because yeah. that is awesome. I I put myself on the me mailing list. They got like sixty thousand people or something like that on it. So it's it's um, definitely looks interesting as a, as an as a new kind of um, HTML browser engine. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that's right. great. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, a couple other small things I just want to mention. So we got an email from Andy Bryce. Um, he's doing a training course in the UK in November for people who want to start their own bootstrap startup company. Oh yeah. It's called successful software.net. 
So go to successfulsoftware.net, and especially if you're in the UK, because you remember you were you said you were in the UK, you felt so removed from everything. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like uh, Andy's doing something over there, so cool. Checking out. I'll put a link to it on the site. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, and uh, let's see, there's one other thing I want to talk about. Um, the uh, you're talking. Oh, where's the uh, find the article here? Ah, so you have too many articles. Oh, it's called "How China Brainwashed American POWs Using Classic Sales Technique." Yeah, I I, I, I thought that looked interesting, but I didn't read it. Yeah. So they use what's called the foot in the door technique, which is just how you leverage the power of gradualism. Yeah. You know, you get people to move a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and this is you know commitments are more effective in changing a person's self-image and future behavior when they're active, public, and effortful. Okay? So active means you're actually doing something. So they would have, try and get people to just agree to something small. Would you agree that the com- that communism isn't the worst thing that could ever exist? You know, whatever. Just agree to little, little steps, right? Yeah. And if you had, they had people, they had like essay contests. If you, got an, if you want an essay contest, you get an extra bag of rice or something like that. And so, but by doing something active, it made... It, would create, it, it created more buy-in. And by making it public, it created much more uh, movement. And, um, when and was if, this? And if it required more effort, and the more effort it required, the more... When was this? The, yeah, this is during the Korean War. Huh. And um, so, yeah, so active, public, and effortful, which is like, you know, we, we talk about this too, is like when people establish a public a public position on something especially like a like a political thing they're very hard to move on it especially if they've expressed themselves on twitter or mm-hmm. written up articles about it like you'll almost never see a pundit or columnist change their political position on something ever because except for, except been, for me for you no, no no like you will regularly see me change my position on okay uh, but i mean if uh, if you had come out if you had come out and written a big article about something they put a lot of effort into yeah, it true. Yeah. you put your your flag in the you know they call your you know you put your um i can't i'm 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 screwing up the saying or the the but you know you you put your pole in the sand or whatever right, right. this is where i am right yeah. people don't tend to move too much mm-hmm. yeah i think you said you, said you got to go right you're done yeah well so because my my buddy ollie uh is is coming over from the uk and he's gonna be staying with us for uh, the next week uh well for maybe five days and uh, he's just going to be here in uh, an hour or so, and we still have house cleaning to do. Ah, uh, oh, so we're not going to lunch. I thought we we're going to lunch today. Yeah, I said. Well, I said we'll do uh, we'll do the podcast. And we'll grab lunch afterwards. I might be able to do that. Really? I might be. I might be able to do. It. If, if it was, like, hey, I don't want to get you in if trouble. It was a half hour, I don't want to get you in trouble, Georgie. Actually, he's going to be coming here at four. I've just seen a message there, so we that does grab- give me a few hours. Yeah. I'll probably drag the Pollo Loco. Though, okay, so. okay, fair enough. So it's going to suck for you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a wrap. We're out.